Welcome to the How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast, presented by the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber in Boston. Join us as we review some of the more complicated colon and rectal cancer cases and discuss the treatment decisions with leading medical experts in the colorectal cancer field. Welcome to the How We Treat podcast from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Today we will be discussing a patient with rectal cancer that was treated with a watch-and-wait protocol. We presented this case at our multidisciplinary conference that we hold every week. The team discussing will be myself, Dr. Ron Bladé from Surgery, Dr. Harvey Mammon from the Radiation Therapy Group, Dr. Jeff Wish from Medical Oncology, and Dr. Michael Rosenthal from Radiology. Today we have the pleasure of also talking to Dr. Rodrigo Perez. Dr. Perez is a Brazilian surgeon that works with Dr. Habergama in Brazil. This group is the one that first thought of and then articulated the results of Watch and Wait. He will discuss the current practice and also the history and development of Watch and Wait over the past two decades. Finally, Jeff Myhart and I will wrap up with a discussion on the status of Watch and Wait in the United States as a treatment and where it stands in the clinical trials mechanism. I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the multidisciplinary treatment conference and we're going to be presenting a patient that we've been following actually for 10 months now. It's a 65-year-old man that presented with rectal bleeding. He didn't have any pain. He just had rectal bleeding. And he had a colonoscopy five and a half years prior to January 2017. He then underwent another colonoscopy because of symptoms and was found to have a adenocarcinoma in the distal rectum right, right at the top of the anal canal. He has no significant past medical history of any uh, merit. He has no uh, family history for colorectal cancer on exam was found to really be healthy on rectal. There was a three centimeter mass growing in the anal canal. You could feel it attached to the internal sphincter posteriorly and there was no pain uh, on examination and it was mobile in the pelvis but not mobile in terms of the sphincter. And so the team got together with uh, Jeff Wish, Harvey Mammon in order to discuss preoperative chemo radiation therapy or Jeff, why don't you go through the options that we talked about with him? So when we met with the gentleman, talked about the standard approach to treatment, which would be my modality chemo radiation. I think originally we had recommended short course, and I'll have Harvey elaborate on that, going to APR. The patient at that time was very mixed about how he wanted to proceed. It was very clear from the onset, though, that he really wanted to avoid an APR at all costs. Harvey, he saw you and spoke to you about that. You might want to elaborate a bit about that. Yeah, so it's a question lots of patients ask us. And, you know, what I generally say is that the standard of care surgery is the primary therapy for rectal cancer and chemotherapy and radiation are both adjuvant or neoadjuvant. They're not the definitive therapy. But I do let them know there are a few small studies 
Uh, none of them are randomized. They probably all have some issues with patient selection uh, in which patients do well. They have a clinical complete response and are followed very closely uh, without surgery. And he definitely became very focused on that possibility very early in the, in the course of all of our interaction with him. That, that affected the decision on short course versus long course because if we, if he were going straight to APR, which as we've all been saying is the standard treatment, short course probably would have been fine because this wasn't a big bulky tumor that needed downstaging for an R0 resection. You know, in fact, the latest, not so late, 2015 publication of the Stockholm 3 trial uh, consistent with a much earlier RTOG trial from 15 years ago or more, suggests that if you radiate even with short course and wait six to eight weeks, you'll get downstaging without long course chemo radiation. We haven't, that hasn't made it into routine practice yet. So I'd say our routine practice is for a big bulky tumor that requires downstaging, we recommend chemo radiation. And for a tumor where downstaging isn't necessary for an R0 resection. The current data suggests the long-term local control and toxicity are both going to be similar with short course. So short course was our recommendation, but there's certainly no data with short course as non-operative management, and he was very focused on that. So he definitely wanted to go with the chemo radiation on the chance that he would achieve a clinical complete response that might make not having the surgery something that could be an option down the road. So he then went on to receive long-course chemoradiation, and he tolerated it very well. And during the course of this, the discussion was ongoing. Not only was he focused on not having an APR, but he was also focused on some data that he was privy to regarding Brazilian and German studies that suggested that he probably didn't need adjuvant therapy either. And I also did explain to him that our standard approach would be to give him adjuvant chemotherapy although, albeit those, that data is, is uh, extrapolated data from a lot of trials early on, it still is considered to be the, the standard. Although the original Brazilian trial did not have adjuvant therapy, the chemo radiation, and then later versions have shown additions. So, so anyways, he had the chemo radiation. He then had a follow-up exam with a flexible sigmoidoscopy and a follow-up MRI in uh, about five months after original presentation and about two months after completion of chemoradiation. On the flexible sigmoidoscopy, uh, he had on exam some firmness, which was concerning, and he had an ulceration, which was concerning. So we did a biopsy. The biopsies all came back as necroinflammatory debris, and he was asymptomatic. We said our options are to do another uh, sort of close follow-up in, in two or three months or to proceed to surgery. He wanted to proceed ahead with close follow-up. And he was then seen three months uh, later, so about five months post-completion of chemoradiation. And on this flexible sigmoidoscopy, it was completely resolved. The ulcer had completely resolved. It was a, just a smooth mucosa. Uh, you, know, you can only tell that there was, had been a tumor there by a slight change in the pigmentation but there was uh, absolutely no evidence of any uh, mass. And so that's where we are now. What do you think, Jeff and Harvey, that we should do uh, going forward for a follow-up? Well, I think, I think one of the issues is if you look at all of the previous small trials, there were various levels of intensity of follow-up. There were various modalities. 
it's hard to know what the right modalities are and, and what the proper interval is. I would be much more conservative with him and, and follow him very closely. Uh, you know, some of these issues are going to be addressed by the current uh, Sloan-Kettering trial, which is actually going to look at total neoadjuvant therapy up front and, and following patients and really seeing which of the modalities it, at intervals are the most helpful. But in this particular situation, because we also know that patients uh, who uh, have a clinical complete response who then go on to a pathological complete response do the best, he's probably in the best situation he could be in to make this decision. Uh, he's on as solid ground as he could be from my read of the literature uh, to follow him going forward. The only thing I'd add is that what's pretty common among all of these reports is very good patient compliance and close follow-up. And there's a pretty high rate of local recurrence. It varies from study to study. The reason the overall survival numbers are good is because they have high salvage. There aren't a lot of patients presenting with incurable metastatic disease, but there are a lot of local recurrences picked up in that first year. So I think a combination of physical exam and imaging every three months, certainly for the first year, I think when you get into year two and three, what becomes three months, what becomes six months is really guesswork at this point. But the point is, if this isn't a reliable patient that you're not sure is going to come back for very close follow-up, um, this is really not the way to go. So I think going forward, we'll physically do a physical exam every three months, probably do an MRI six months after the last one, and then figure out year one to year two follow-up, uh, depending on, on how he's doing. We're here in Seattle with Rodrigo Perez. Rodrigo is a surgeon from Brazil who has been working with Dr. Habergama on the watch and wait protocol, which I tell you from the American side, 13 years ago when the paper came out, everybody was aghast at the concept, but now it's finally finding its day. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of how she sort of came up with the concept and then how you got involved. Okay, so thanks for having me. My name is Rodrigo Perez. I am a colorectal surgeon. I work with Professor Abergama for a number of years now at the University of Sao Paulo initially and now at the Habergama Institute also in Sao Paulo. The way this got started was in the beginning Angelita was thinking about giving chemo radiation therapy to patients with rectal cancer and shortly after that, just like what happened to Nigro in anal cancer, she acknowledged the fact that a number of patients actually underwent the radical procedure, ended up with a definitive stoma and had no residual cancer in the resected specimen. It made her think that perhaps she could assess response prior to actually operating on these patients. Now, before the, you know, the very well-known paper, uh, Annals of Surgery, a lot of people don't know what happened before that. So she actually came to this same meeting in San Diego a number of years before. She gave the very first talk in the neoplasia session at the ASCRS meeting, and people really didn't understand what she was trying to say. I, I, Probably there was a little bit of a, of a language barrier, yeah. which people didn't understand quite exactly what she was trying to tell people. And Heidi Nelson was moderating that session. And, and by the time Angelita herself gave the talk, Heidi Nelson said, you know, this is a paper we shouldn't be discussing, and this is not, this is not going to be open for discussion. Let's just let's move to the next paper. 
So Angelita was very much frustrated. I don't know if she actually understood what Heidi Nelson just said because she was so, you know, in the, in the heat of the moment and she was yeah. getting off the podium. And that was 1996. Wow. Between 1996 and 2004, nothing was published on Watch and Wait. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of that had to do with the with the barrier, with the, you know, blockade, or, you know, people didn't understand what the concept of watching way really was. Now, the idea that Angelita always had was not to say that these patients are not being operated at all. Instead, it was the, the principle of not offering immediate radical surgery, and instead giving a little time so to that, see if it disappeared. Exactly. Right, right. To reassess response in a, you know, in an interval period in which there would be no harm to the patients to wait additional six or eight weeks, come back to the clinic again and reassess yeah. and, then, and then go on and on and on. And actually, some of these patients didn't need an operation forever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have to remember when Angelita started this, there was no MRI, there was no CT scan, it was terrible. It was your finger. It was yeah. your <laughs> finger in your eye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this, the concept was quite a difficult to, for people to understand that it wasn't doing any harm to patients by simply deferring final decision management of, the, of these patients in the very beginning. Yeah. So between 1998 and 2004, none was published on Watch and Wait. Yeah. But then the 2004 paper came on, and a lot of the people understood what was the idea and the concept behind the Watch and Wait strategy, which is really not you know, defining what's going to be the outcome or non-surgical treatment of these patients. Instead, these patients are put in a very strict follow-up and then you reassess them continuously right. until you have a definitive indication or evidence that there is cancer to be removed. Right. Otherwise, simply go on observating them. Yeah. Now, how'd you get involved? So as a resident at the time this was going on, and the, the person who was responsible for the outpatient clinic in rectal cancer at the university wanted to move away, and she asked me if I would be willing to take that and I was very excited to do so but you have to understand at that time nobody really was really interested in the watch and wait concept because it was a non-surgical thing right so right. Every, you know as a resident everybody else was interested in doing you know outpatient clinic having to do with surgery and there I was taking care of patients with rectal cancer not undergoing surgery so at that time nobody wanted to do it so I said I can do it and then it was interesting because it actually the referral because of the watch and wait actually increased my practice because everybody wants to come over and At least try it. Exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. And hear what you have to say, whether they need or not an operation after all. So it actually increased my practice and I saw many patients with rectal cancer that ultimately needed an operation. Right. But simply the fact that I was doing this watch and wait clinic actually attracted a lot of attention to patients with rectal cancer. Yeah. So I think you bring up a good point is that if you take, like on your paper here, if you take 100 people, some are T2, some are T3, some are T4, when you get right down to it, the majority are going to need an operation. Right. And so tell us a little bit about if 100 people come in with T2 and zeros, how many do you think ultimately can get by with the watch and wait local excision or TME? What's your take on that? So you have to take into account two things. First of all, staging has dramatically improved. Yes. So now we know 
that these are T2 and 0. Right. Well, in the beginning, we weren't really sure. Now we're pretty sure they're T2 and 0. Exactly. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, we changed the chemo radiation regimens. So now the radiation used to be 45, went to 50.4, and now we're actually giving these patients 54 grays of radiation. Now, people may think that this is a very subtle difference, but it's not, because you're almost doubling or tripling the boost to the primary cancer. Right. And this has a lot to do with the achievement of a complete clinical response. I see. So that's number two. So when you have a T2N0, using these very advanced and aggressive chemoradiation therapy regimens with 54 grays of radiation, we currently achieve 70% long-term complete clinical response patients would never get an operation for T2N0 disease. Mm -hmm. Now, we've heard a lot of discussion this morning that patients get chemoradiation therapy and then discuss watch and wait strategies. In our practice, it's quite the opposite. Patients will come to us because they know what we're doing. They want to discuss up front. If they have a complete response, they will ultimately avoid an operation. So this is something that is brought to the table, to the discussion with the patient up front. Right. What are we going to do here? Why are we doing it? And if you have a complete response, what are we going to do about it? Yeah. And so if a patient is not willing to undergo chemoradiation, he's okay with going surgery up front, we would obviously not give a T2N0 chemoradiation therapy. But the problem is they come to us because they know we're going to give chemoradiation therapy, and if they have a complete clinical response, we're not going to do any kind of surgery to Right, them. right. And in the ACASOG trial, it was 50% complete response. And then how many of those end up having to come to surgery? Is it? I saw one paper was 40%, other papers are... 3% or 4%. In your paper, the T2N0 has hardly ever recurred. Exactly. So when we give 54 grays, yeah. the T2s are probably going to have 70% rate complete response rate, right. which means in the first year, this rate is going to be 80%. And then as time goes by, you will have approximately 5 to 10% local recurrence rate. So you have a 20% right off the bat and have an incomplete response right. and then you have an additional maybe 5 to 10% that will recur over time in the long run. So recurrences you're going to have to deal with will be probably 10%. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. now you have to weight this and balance this because if you give a T2N0 chemoradiation therapy and you still have to do an operation, you still will have to deal with the problems of chemoradiation therapy. And if you have a complete clinical response, then it's a home run. You did the most you could, but you're going to avoid the worst part of the treatment, which is surgery, to 80% of the patients. So you have to balance that, and I think you have to balance and discuss this with the patient before you consider giving them chemoradiation therapy. And, you know, my interest is in local excision. What about adding local excision to the 20% that don't respond? Will yeah. that push that up to and lower the recurrence rate even yes. more? Yes, it would. This is something else that you have to consider up front. If you're going to do local excision for a patient with an incomplete response to chemoradiation therapy, you have to be very careful because there's some morbidity associated with the local excision after chemoradiation therapy. Yep. And if you have to go back and do TME in a patient that underwent chemoradiation and local excision, it's going to be a very challenging operation. Yeah. And you may end up with a less than optimal specimen which we know is a surrogate marker for a oncological outcomes right. and in the end 
this may be a patient that could be a candidate for a sphincter-preserving operation. You did a local excision, and when you go back, there's a higher chance of ending up with an AP. So these are things that you have to discuss with your patients before you embark on this, even though it, it may look like a organ-preserving strategy at a first glance, in the long run, you might be better off without local excision here. Again, if you choose the exact patient, which is already a candidate for an AP, yeah. he has a remarkable response. It's very unlikely you're going to have to go back and do TME. This might be the perfect candidate for a local excision after chemoradiation therapy. But as a routine, if you have a T210, and if it's a poor responder, you're pretty sure this is going to be a YPT2 cancer following chemoradiation. So he responded... I mean, he's a, he's a non-responder. Yeah. So local yeah. excision is very unlikely to be the perfect indication here. Yeah. Well, there's so many issues, and we could talk all afternoon, but I really appreciate it. This has been uh, an excellent insight into the history of the watch and wait. And I think one of the things I'll just sort of get your take on is that Everybody thinks that watching weight with rectal cancer is going to be the same as the Nigro protocol, but it isn't. It's a subset of the patients that come to us right. that are going to respond to this, but not all of them like right. they do with right. the anal cancer. Right. Yeah, I think it has to be another tool in the toolbox of us colorectal surgeons, and I think that this is something that has to be discussed with the patients, and the patients have to be able to understand and know that this is an option they have to consider when choosing between treatment A, B, or C. And I'm not saying this is to be offered to all patients, but in a lot of the patients, this is actually going to be a very, very attractive option yeah. for treatment of rectal cancer. Yeah. Good. Thanks very much. Appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. All yeah. right. Good afternoon, Jeff. Today's episode on the podcast is that of watch and wait, which is a hot topic within the colorectal oncology world. And as we know, it was first introduced and quite controversial by the Brazilian group, Dr. Harbor Gama, and also Dr. Rodrigo Perez uh, and others who work with her. And they talk about whether this is a good approach, not for all patients with rectal cancer, but for some patients with rectal cancer. I was at a recent meeting and she spoke there and she discussed the results over the past several years where their protocol is to stage patients, and I think the T4 patients are excluded, but patients with T1, T2, or T3 disease are eligible. They then undergo chemoradiation in the usual fashion and then they have some consolidative chemotherapy afterwards, just using 5-FU and leucovorin. I think it's about three doses. And they found that evaluating the patient at about 12 weeks is the best sort of initial time to see if they've had a complete response. And they've had excellent results compared to what you would think. In other words, some patients didn't have a good response, some had an early recurrence, and some had a late recurrence. But after waiting a period of about a year, there's about 29% had a durable response that then persisted. So what are your thoughts on watch and wait, and what's the future of it as we go forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that this has been a strategy that, as you said, has been around for a while uh, and really not adopted in the United States till really the past five to ten years. That you know, I think people were afraid to, to think of that, that 
Though at the same time, we're doing a randomized study in rectal cancer trying to remove amodality radiation. That's the PROSPECT trial. And this is essentially trying to see if a different modality can be held in some patients and still lead to uh, uh, good outcomes. Because we know that some patients with chemoradiation and chemotherapy will have complete responses and very good responses, and not all of them will need surgery and be spared uh, having a colostomy or the other morbidities even if they didn't have a permanent colostomy. So the, the, the real issue that I think we've all struggled with is how to identify the patients, how to be able to follow the patients, and, and again, is at the end of the day, is this strategy as safe as going through all three modalities of therapy? There, the, probably the largest experience in the United States is the experience in the trial being conducted at Memorial Sloan Kettering. It's, a, it's an R01-funded trial of about 300 patients now, where the strategy they took was to try to see what the preoperative treatment should be. So it's a, a comparing doing an induction chemotherapy followed by chemoradiotherapy versus chemoradiotherapy followed by chemotherapy. And again, trying to see if either those strategy will increase the number of patients who can then have a non-operative management and followed. Their experience has been very positive. They've had a lot of patients where they've been able to follow. Patients have tolerated. It's been very accepted. Uh, it's open at about, I think, 10 different sites outside Memorial. So they do have a few community oncology practices and a few other academic centers. And, and we have now talked to them about trying to expand this into a larger trial through the uh, NCI, uh, National Cancer Treatment Network system. And I think the importance of that is, first, to be able to really provide a protocol for physicians, both in the community and academic centers, to follow, because I think we are all struggling, who are the right patients and how do you follow them, and, and really laying out a protocol and having sort of rigorous data to be able to look at how successful that strategy is compared to what we would think historically. And again, trying to find what's the best strategy to maximize the number of patients that we have uh, that we can bring towards non-operative management. So I think that it, it's going to be a, it's a tough trial to exactly define uh, how to do because I think none of us will be able to randomize patients to either having a surgery or not having a surgery. I think there's going to be patients who reach a point where you can make a decision regarding non-operative management and it'll be hard to randomize those patients. But trying to figure out if we can optimize the best way to do it and then compare it to what we'll see from other data sets in terms of how people do, and if that strategy of at least considering non-operative management up front is a strategy that will be successful in some patients. Yeah, it's going to be a, uh, a difficult sell unless it's in a trial mechanism, in my opinion, because there are a lot of surgeons, medical oncologists, and radiation therapists who want to try it, but do want the structure and the safety of a, of a clinical trial to reassure both themselves and the patients that, that we're not experimenting on them. That being said, there are patients, mostly those that are faced with the difficult choice of having a colostomy or not, who have quite eagerly said, I will be willing to do this watch and wait observational trial. And so far, those are the ones that we have put into our practice, not very many, yeah, no, we, we're, we're slowly developing understanding how we do that ourselves. And it, it's going to require a real team approach because it's not just the surgeon, medical oncologist, and radiation. 
you know, the, radi the radiologist will need expertise how to interpret the imaging. The pathologist to really know when you guys do biopsy at some time point after to be able to really be able to interpret those results. So it's going to be a whole team approach. And each member of those teams are going to have to be educated how to do this and for whom to do this for. And it seems that the salvage, if a patient has a response and then has an earlier late recurrence, that the salvage is pretty good and that you have not burned a bridge where the patient then has uh, doomed to have a sort of a local recurrence. That if you follow them closely, you, you tend to capture them early and are able to recure them per se. Well, it's a very exciting time and we'll just see where the data brings us. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think we'll, we'll keep learning more every year and, and hopefully again have some mechanism where it could be more universally throughout the United States to be able to put patients on the trial. Great. Thanks, Ron.